Chapter 14 of The Countess of Rudelstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudelstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Consuelo was carried back to her lodgings in the same carriage that had brought her to the palace. Two guards were placed before each door of her apartment in the interior of the house, and Monsieur de Budenbrock, watch in hand, according to his customary imitation of the rigid punctuality of the master, gave her an hour in which to make her preparations, not without warning her that her packages would be subjected to the examination of the keepers of the fortress she was about to inhabit. On returning to her chamber, she found everything in the most picturesque disorder. During her conference with the king, some agents of the secret police had come, by order, to force the locks and seize all her papers. Consuelo, who in matters of manuscript possessed only music, experienced some vexation at the thought that she should perhaps never again see her precious and dear authors, the only riches she had amassed during her life. She regretted much less some jewels which had been presented to her by different great personages at Vienna and Berlin as a recompense for evenings of singing. They had been taken from her under the pretext that they might contain poisoned rings or seditious emblems. The king never knew anything of this, nor did Consuelo ever see them again. Those persons who were employed in the mean actions of the great Frederick gave themselves up without shame to those honest speculations, being, moreover, poorly paid and knowing that the king preferred to shut his eyes to their pillaging rather than increase their salaries. Consuelo's first look was for her crucifix, and seeing that they had not thought of carrying it away, doubtless on account of its little value, she very quickly took it down and put it in her pocket. She saw the crown of roses faded and lying on the floor, then seizing it to examine it, she remarked with affright that the slip of parchment which contained the mysterious encouragements was no longer there. This was the only proof that could be brought against her of any connection with a pretended conspiracy. But to how many comments might not this slight indication give rise? While anxiously seeking for it, she carried her hand to her pocket and there found it. She had mechanically put it there at the moment when Budenbrock came for her an hour before. Reassured on this point and well satisfied that nothing could be found amongst her papers to compromise anyone, she hastened to get together the articles necessary for an absence, the possible duration of which she did not conceal from herself. She had no one to assist her, for her servant had been arrested in order to be examined and in the midst of her dresses torn from her wardrobes and thrown in disorder upon all the furniture, she had, besides the trouble occasioned by her situation, some difficulty in knowing where she was. Suddenly the noise of something heavy falling in the middle of the chamber attracted her attention. It was a large nail run through a small note. The star was laconic. Do you wish to escape? Show yourself at the window. In three minutes you will be in safety." Consuelo's first impulse was to run to the window, but she stopped halfway, for she thought that her flight, in case she should effect it, would be like an acknowledgment of guilt, and such an acknowledgment, under these circumstances, always causes a supposition of accomplices. O oh, Princess Amelia, thought she, 
If it be true that you have betrayed me, I will not betray you. I will pay my debts to Trenk. He saved my life. If necessary, I will lose mine for him. Reanimated by this generous idea, she completed her package with much presence of mind and was ready when Budenbrock came for her to depart. She found him more hypocritical and more malicious than usual. At once cringing and proud, Budenbrock was jealous of the sympathies of his master, like those old dogs which bite all the friends of the house. He had been wounded by the lesson the king had given him, even while charging him to terrify the victim, and he asked nothing more than to be revenged on her. I am much troubled, mademoiselle, said he to her, at being obliged to execute such severe orders. It is a long while since such a thing has been seen at Berlin. No, it has not been seen since the time of Frederick William, the august father of his majesty now reigning. It was a cruel example of the severity of our laws and of the terrible power of our princes. I shall remember it all my life. To what example do you refer, sir? asked Consuelo, who began to think her life was threatened. To no one in particular, replied Budenbrock. I was speaking of the reign of Frederick William, which was from beginning to end an example of firmness never to be forgotten. At that time, neither age nor sex was respected when a serious offense had to be punished. I recollect a very pretty, very well-born, and very amiable young lady who, for having sometimes received the visits of an august personage, contrary to the will of the king, was handed over to the executioners and driven from the city after having been scourged with rods. I know that story, sir, replied Consuelo, divided between terror and indignation. The young lady was chaste and pure. All her crime was having sung with his majesty now reigning, as you say, and then Prince Royal. Has this St. Frederick been so little affected by the catastrophes drawn by himself upon the heads of others that he can now wish to terrify me by the threat of any similar infamy? I think not, Signora. His Majesty does nothing that is not great and just, and it is for you to know if your innocence protects you from his anger. I wish to believe it. Still, I have just seen the king irritated to a degree that has perhaps never occurred before. He cried out that he was wrong to wish to reign indulgently, and that never, in the lifetime of his father, would any woman have displayed the audacity you had exhibited. In fine, some other words of his majesty made me fear some degrading punishment for you. I know not what. I do not wish to imagine. My part in all this is very painful. And if, at the gate of the city, it should appear that the king has given orders contrary to those I have received to conduct you immediately to Spandau, I should hasten to withdraw, the dignity of my office not permitting me to be present. Monsieur de Budenbrock, seeing that the desired effect was produced and that the unhappy Consuelo was almost fainting, stopped. At this moment she repented of her devotedness and could not help invoking her unknown protectors in the secret of her heart. But as she fixed her haggard eyes upon Budenbrock's features, she found in them the hesitation of falsehood and began to be reassured. Her heart still beat as if it would burst, when a police agent presented himself at the gate of Berlin to exchange some words with Monsieur de Budenbrock. 
During this time, one of the grenadiers who accompanied the carriage on horseback approached the opposite door and said to her rapidly and in a low voice, Be tranquil, Signora. Much blood would be shed before any harm should happen to you. In her trouble, Consuelo did not recognize the features of this unknown friend who immediately withdrew. The carriage took at full speed the road to the fortress, and in an hour the porporina was incarcerated in the chateau of Spandau with all the customary formalities, or rather with those few formalities which absolute power requires in its proceedings. This citadel, then considered impregnable, is built in the middle of a lake formed by the confluence of the Havel and the Spree. The day had become dark and foggy, and Consuelo, having accomplished her sacrifice, felt that apathetic exhaustion which follows deeds of energy and enthusiasm. She therefore entered the sad domicile which was assigned to her without noticing anything around. She felt exhausted, and though it was hardly midday, she threw herself still dressed upon the bed and fell into a sound sleep. To the fatigue she experienced was united that kind of delicious security of which a good conscience gathers the fruits. And though the bed was very hard and very narrow, she there enjoyed the best possible slumber. After some time she was only half asleep when she heard midnight strike from the clock of the citadel. The reverberation of sound is so powerful in musical ears that she was completely waked by it. As she raised herself upon her bed, she comprehended that she was in prison and that she must pass the first night in reflection as she had slept the whole day. The perspective of such a wakefulness in inaction and darkness was not very pleasing. She said that she must resign herself and endeavor at once to become accustomed to it. She was astonished that she did not suffer from cold and congratulated herself that at least she was not to undergo that physical discomfort which paralyzed his thought. The wind howled without in a lamentable manner, the rain beat against the glass, and Consuelo could only see from her narrow window the close grating projected against the gloomy and veiled blue of a starless night. The poor captive passed the first hour of this punishment, entirely new to her, in a great clearness of mind and in thoughts full of logic, of reason, and philosophy. But by degrees this tension fatigued her brain, and the night began to seem gloomy to her. Her positive reflections changed into vague and strange reveries. Fanciful images, painful reminiscences, frightful apprehensions assailed her, and she found herself in a state which was neither waking nor sleep, and in which all her ideas assumed a form and seemed to float in the darkness of her cell. At one time she thought herself upon the stage, and she sang mentally a whole part which wearied her, and of which the recollection besieged her without her being able to get rid of it, then saw herself in the hands of the executioner, her shoulders bare before a stupid and curious crowd, and torn by rods, while the king looked at her from a balcony with an angry air, and Anzalito laughed in a corner. At last she fell into a sort of stupor, and had before her eyes only the specter of Albert lying upon his bed of death, and making vain efforts to rise and come to her assistance. Then this image was effaced, and she thought herself sleeping on the ground in the grotto of the Schreckenstein, 
while the sublime and heart-rending sounds of Albert's violin gave utterance to an eloquent and sad prayer in the depths of the cavern. Consuelo was, in fact, half asleep. The tones of the instrument struck her ear and restored calmness to her mind. The phrases were so connected, though weakened by distance, and the modulations so distinct that she was persuaded she really heard it without thinking of being astonished. It seemed to her that this music dream lasted an hour, and that she at last lost it in the air by insensible diminutions. Consuelo had really fallen asleep, and the day had begun to dawn when she again opened her eyes. Her first care was to examine her chamber, which she had not even looked at the day before, so entirely had the moral life absorbed in her the feeling of physical life. It was a cell entirely bare but clean, and warmed by a brick stove which was tended from outside and threw no brightness into the apartment, but maintained a very comfortable temperature. A single arched window admitted light into the chamber, which still was not too dark, the walls being whitewashed and not very high. Three blows were struck in the door, and the keeper cried through it with a strong voice. Prisoner number three, rise and dress yourself. Your chamber will be entered in a quarter of an hour. Consuelo hastened to obey and to make up her bed before the return of the keeper, who brought her bread and water for the day with a very respectful air. He had the formal look of an old major domo to a good family, and he placed his frugal prison fare upon the table with as much care and neatness as he would have displayed in serving up the most delicate repast. Consuelo examined this man, who was of advanced age, and whose well-cut and gentle features had in them nothing repulsive at first sight. He had been selected to wait upon the female prisoners in consequence of his manners, his good behavior, and his discretion proof against all trials. His name was Schwartz, and he mentioned it to Consuelo. I live below, said he, and should you be ill, you have only to call me from your window. Have not you a wife? asked Consuelo. Doubtless, replied he, and if you absolutely require her, she will be at your orders. But she is forbidden to communicate with the lady prisoners, except in case of illness. The physician determines that. I have also a son who will share with me the honor of serving you. I have no need of so many servants, and if you will be pleased to allow me, Mr. Schwartz, I will have none but yourself and your wife. I know that my age and my continence reassured the ladies, but my son is no more to be feared than I am. He is an excellent child, full of piety, gentleness, and firmness. The keeper pronounced this last word with an expressive clearness which the prisoner understood very well. Mr. Schwartz, said she to him, you will not need to make use of your firmness with me. I have come here almost voluntarily and have no intention of escaping. So long as I am treated with decency and propriety, as now appears will be the case, I shall bear without complaining the discipline of the prison, however rigorous it may be. Speaking thus, Consuelo, who had eaten nothing for twenty-four hours and had suffered from hunger all night, began to break the dry bread and to eat it with appetite. She then remarked that her resignation made an impression upon the old keeper, and that he was at once astonished and vexed at it. "'Has your ladyship no repugnance, then, to this coarse food?' asked he with some embarrassment. 
I will not conceal from you that, for the sake of my health, I should desire something more substantial in the long run, but if I am obliged to content myself with this, it will not trouble me much. Still, you are accustomed to live well. You have a good table at home, I suppose. Oh, certainly, without doubt. And then, returned Schwartz with an insinuating air, why should you not have proper food served to you here at your own expense? Is that permitted, then? Assuredly, cried Schwartz, whose eyes glistened at the idea of exercising his traffic, after having feared to find a person too poor or too abstemious to ensure him this profit. If your ladyship has had the precaution to conceal some money upon yourself when coming here, I am not forbidden to supply you with the food you prefer. My wife is a very good cook, and we have some very fine silver plate. That is very kind in you, said Consuelo, who discovered the cupidity of Mr. Schwartz with more disgust than satisfaction. But the question is to know if I have any money, in fact. I was searched on entering here. I know that my crucifix, which I value highly, was left to me, but I have not noticed if my purse was taken. Your ladyship has not noticed it? No, does that astonish you? But your ladyship probably knows what was in your purse. Pretty nearly. While saying this, Consuelo examined her pockets and did not find an obolus. Mr. Schwartz, said she with a courageous gaiety, they have left me nothing so far as I can see. I must therefore be contented with prisoner's fare. Do not deceive yourself in that respect. Well, madam, replied Schwartz, not without making a visible effort over himself, I will prove to you that my family is honest and that you have to do with estimable people. Your purse is in my pocket. Here it is. And he made the purse glitter before the eyes of Consuelo, then quietly replaced it in his pocket. Much good may it do you, said Consuelo, astonished at his impudence. Wait a moment, said the grasping and scrupulous Schwartz. It was my wife who searched you. She has orders to leave no money to the prisoners for fear they should use it to corrupt the keepers. But when the keepers are incorruptible, the precaution is useless. She has not therefore considered it a duty to transmit your money to the governor. But as there is a precise order to the letter of which we are obliged in conscience to conform, your purse cannot return directly to your hands. Keep it then, said Consuelo, since such is your good pleasure. Without any doubt, I shall keep it, and you will thank me for it. I am the depository of your money, and will use it for your necessities as you shall desire. I will bring you the dishes that are to your liking. I will take good care of your stove. I will even provide you with a good bed and linen in any quantity. I will settle my account every day, and will pay myself from your funds up to their full amount." Well and good, said Consuelo. I see that there are compromises with heaven, and I appreciate Mr. Schwartz's honesty as I ought. But when the sum, which is not large, is exhausted, you will then furnish me with the means of procuring fresh funds? I beg your ladyship not to express yourself in that manner. It would be failing in my duty, and I shall never do it. But your ladyship will not suffer. You will designate to me, either at Berlin or elsewhere, the person who is a depository of your funds, and I will send my bills to that person in order that they may be regularly settled. My orders do not prevent that. 
Very well, you have found the means of correcting those orders which are very inconsistent since they permit you to treat us well and yet deprive us of the means of inducing you to do so. When my gold ducats are used up, I will find a means of satisfying you. Begin, therefore, by bringing me some chocolate. At dinner you will give me a chicken and vegetables. During the day you will procure me some books, and in the evening you will furnish me with a light. As to the chocolate, your ladyship shall have it in five minutes. The dinner will go as if it were on wheels. I will add to it a good soup, some dainties which ladies do not dislike, and coffee which is very salutary to counteract the damp atmosphere of this residence. As to the books and the light, it is impossible. I should be dismissed on the instant, and my conscience forbids my infringing my orders. But delicate food and dainties are also prohibited? No, we are permitted to treat the ladies, and especially your ladyship, with humanity in all that relates to health and comfort. But ennoi is equally prejudicial to health. Your ladyship is mistaken. People always grow fat here by good nourishment and repose of mind. I could mention to you a certain lady who came in as thin as you are and who left twenty years after, weighing at least 180 pounds. Many thanks, Mr. Schwartz. I do not desire so formidable an embonpoint, and I hope that you will not refuse me the books and the light. I humbly request your ladyship to excuse me. I shall not disregard my duty. Besides, your ladyship need not be annoyed. You will have your harpsichord and your music this very day. Truly, is it to you that I owe this consolation, Mr. Schwartz? No, Signora, it is the will of His Majesty, and I have an order from the Governor to permit those articles to pass and to place them in your chamber. Consuelo, enchanted at the prospect of being able to make music, did not think of asking for more. She took her chocolate gaily while Mr. Schwartz arranged her furniture, consisting of a poor bed, two straw chairs, and a little fur table. Your ladyship will require a commode, said he, with that caressing air assumed by persons disposed to overwhelm us with attentions and kindnesses for the sake of our money. And then a better bed, a carpet, a bureau, an armchair, a toilet table. I accept the commode and the toilet table, replied Consuelo, who wished to husband her resources. As to the rest, I will excuse you. I am not delicate, and I request you to furnish me only with what I shall ask for. Mr. Schwartz tossed his head with an air of astonishment and almost of contempt, but he did not reply, and when he had rejoined his very worthy spouse, She is not wicked, said he to her, speaking of the new prisoner, but she is poor. We shall not make great profits out of her. How can you expect her to spend, returned Madame Schwartz, shrugging her shoulders, she is not a lady, not she. She is an actress, they say. An actress, cried Schwartz. Well, I am delighted for the sake of our son Gottlieb. Fie, then, returned Madame Schwartz, knitting her brows. Do you want to make a mountebank of him? You do not understand me, wife. He will be a preacher. I shall not give up that idea. He has studied for that, and he is the stuff of which they are made. But as he must preach, and as he has not displayed much eloquence hitherto, this actress can give him lessons in declamation. 
The idea is not a bad one, provided she does not want to deduct the price of her lessons from our bills. Oh, you need not fear that. She is not in the least sharp, replied Schwartz, chuckling and rubbing his hands. End of chapter 14 Read by Bryce Cries, Youngstown